probably a few of you have smiled, maybe even chuckled, but truth is, this story's a tragedy. Your hump is bigger than mine. And I would be a part of my father's world that nobody else got to share. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed filled with stories for you and your family. Since 2013, we've been bringing you tall tales, and personal tales, and fairy tales, and historical tales, and more. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers to warm your heart and lift your spirit and give flight to your imagination. I'm Sam Payne, your host, and we're going to do a little of all of that today. You know, many of the most enduring stories come with lessons for those who listen to learn morals these stories have. And sometimes stories teach us important life lessons about how we should be kind to others, how we should be honest or hardworking or take care of our friends. And other stories might teach us more unconventional lessons. But today's stories are filled with morals and lessons ranging from the commonsensical to outright bizarre. And before we get to the stories that we want to bring you today, we want to remind you to join us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. There you will find the uh, episodes of the Appleseed that you love, more than 2,000 of them waiting for you there, each one filled with stories for you and your family. And you'll also find some podcast-only extras. In fact, we call them extras, mini-episodes of the show filled with just a single story, just a few minutes long usually, in case you only have a few minutes, like from the door to the store, for example, and you want to fill those few minutes with a great story. If you go to byuradio.org slash Appleseed today, you'll find a story called The Turtle Who Couldn't Stop Talking by Martha Hamilton from a collection of stories called How and Why Stories kids can tell. And uh, that's going to be a delight for you to hear. And we've got an Appleseed Extra waiting for you just about every day there at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. Or, of course, you can subscribe to the podcast and get all of that there on your mobile device. And now to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, this is a story told for you by Brian Fox Ellis. It's a story called Mr. Catfish. Now, Brian is a storyteller who lives in Illinois and specializes in stories of the people and animals and environs of the Mississippi River neighborhood where he lives. You can often find him telling stories on riverboats on that river or stories in the character of people from Illinois history and the history surrounding the place where he lives. Well, again, this is a story about a critter, about a fish native to that area. The story is called Mr. Catfish, and it comes from a collection of river stories, one of a couple of collections of river stories that Brian Fox Ellis has. It's a pleasure for us to bring this tale to you. Here's Brian on the Appleseed. As we travel back and forth through time on this here riverboat, I'd like to remind you that history is not just a thing of the past, that history is happening right now. Think about it. What have you done to make the world a better place? What would you like to be remembered for? What stories have you told your children or grandchildren? What stories would you like your great-grandchildren to tell about you a hundred years from now? 
This next story is one of my favorites because it's a true story. It happened to me. It's also my daughter's favorite story. When I was a boy, growing up on the banks of the Illinois River, there was nothing I loved more than going fishing with my dad. When I was sitting in a boat with my dad, fishing, and my dad would be telling me stories, I swear I was in heaven. I remember one time we were up north at Chillicothe in one of the backwater sloughs along the Illinois River, and we were rowing around in a little rowboat, and just like it was meant to be, I cast out my line, bzzz, sploosh, and just as it splashed into the water, a V came moving towards my line. And just a few moments later, I felt a little nibble. Now you know, when you get a nibble, you don't pull right away. I waited till it was a tug. And when I felt that fish tug, I tugged back. I set the hook. I was reeling in. Woo-hoo-ee! I knew this was one of the biggest fish I ever caught. I never had a fish fight so much. I got it in close to the boat and saw it was a huge catfish. Now, my dad knew that that fish would probably break the line if I tried to just pick it up. So he leaned over, got his finger in underneath its gills. I got my fingers in underneath its gills, and we pulled that thing into the boat. Now, that catfish was almost as big as I was. Now, you might find that hard to believe, but I was a small boy, and the record catfish on the Illinois River is 54 pounds. Mine weighed probably 40, 45 pounds. My dad said, shoo that is the biggest catfish I have ever seen. Now, in those days, we didn't have great big coolers with lots of ice. Maybe you remember those days. We wrapped it up in newspaper, and moist newspaper to keep it moist. And then we took that catfish home. We brought it in on the back porch, and I ran in the house and said, Mama, Mama, look at this great big catfish I caught. My mom came out on the back porch, and we unrolled the newspaper. My mom said, Shoo-ee. That is the biggest catfish I have ever seen. And I said, Mom, do you think we could eat it for supper? Now, I know my mom was teasing me when she said, Well, that catfish is so big, we could eat it for supper and breakfast and lunch and supper and breakfast and lunch and supper and breakfast and lunch and supper and breakfast and lunch. And I know she was just teasing. But truth is, a catfish that big would probably feed a family of four for a couple of days. And I looked at it laying there on the back porch. And it looked kind of dead. His eyes were all bugged out, and his lips were going. I said, Mom and Daddy, look, it's not dead. It's still alive. We can't eat it if it's still alive. Mama said, well, I guess you're right. See, in those days, we hadn't heard of sushi before. (laughs) And my dad, who was feeling kind of tired, he said, you know, maybe we'll just leave it here on the back porch, and we'll clean it first thing in the morning. Well, I went on up to bed, and... I must admit, I had trouble getting to sleep that night. Do you remember the day, like, right before Christmas, or the day before summer vacation, how excited you are? I just lay in bed, tossing and turning all night. I was so excited about that fish. But I guess eventually I fell asleep, because next morning, I woke up. (laughs) And when I did, I ran downstairs, and (gasps) the catfish wasn't there. I looked around the back porch. It was gone. And then I looked out in the backyard. Somehow during the night it had flipped and flopped off the porch into the backyard. And the dew in the grass was moist, but it looked kind of dead. 
His eyes were all bugged out, but his lips were going. I said, Mom and Daddy, come here, come here and look. And my mom and dad, they were eating breakfast. They come out, my dad in his pajamas with his cup of coffee. And now, see, my dad, he, he used to like to think he was smart. My mom never told him any different. <laughs> my dad said, well, I guess there was just enough dew in the grass, just enough moisture to keep him alive. And I said, Dad, if he's still alive, can I keep him as a pet, please? And my dad laughed. He said, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. Now, I heard of people having a pet cat before, and I've heard of people having a pet fish before, but I've never heard of anybody having a pet catfish before. And I said, please, Daddy, please, can I, can I, huh? And eventually they gave in. Now, a catfish that big, where do you think we kept him? That's right, in the bathtub. I filled up the bathtub, and not too hot, not too cold, put my little elbow in to make sure the temperature was just right, and then I put that catfish in there. Oh, he just loved it, <laughs> swimming around back and forth. Now, I don't know if a catfish could smile, but if he could, he would have been. He looked so happy swimming around. Well, it was a Saturday, and I had chores to do, so I went on out to rake the leaves and help my dad mow the lawn and such, and as soon as I finished my chores, I ran upstairs to check on the catfish, but when I got there, I guess swimming around, his fin had caught in the chain, and he pulled out the plug, and the water had drained away, and he lay there, looking kind of dead. His eyes were all bugged out, and his lips were going... And I said, Mom, Daddy, come here, come here, he's still alive, he's still alive. Now, I told you my dad used to like to think he was pretty smart, but he never fixed nothing. <laughs> and the bathroom faucet was drip, drip, dripping on that little catfish's nose. He got his nose right in underneath there. And I said, Mom, Dad, look, it, it, not only is he breathing that little water, but it looks like he's learned to breathe air. Now, you and I, we're humans, we breathe air. Take a big, deep breath. But fish, they breathe water. Next time you see a fish doing fish lips, watch their gills. When their lips close, their gills open. When their gills close, their lips open. Can you do fish lips? Try it. I said, Mom and Dad, look, look, look. It looks like he's learned to breathe air. Now, if he can breathe air like us humans can, maybe I can teach him to do other things that humans can. <laughs> My mom and dad both laughed at that one. They said, like what? And I said, well... Maybe I can teach him how to walk. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Walking catfish. I said, haven't you heard of them before? Over in Africa, they have a catfish that can walk. And if a catfish in Africa can walk, why can't a catfish here in America? Well, I got that catfish out of the bathtub, and I stood him up on his hind fins. He had a little trouble keeping his balance. But then I gave him a push, and he started walking around the bathroom. <laughs> he walked out the hall, and, and he walked on down the stairs. I figured, gosh, if he can walk, maybe I can put him to work. <laughs> now, I forgot to tell you, I used to have a baby brother. Now my baby brother's taller than I am. But when he was a little baby, one of the things I had to do was push him around in the stroller. And some of my friends used to tease me like I was some kind of sissy or something. I didn't like that at all. Oh, but I figured not anymore. I leaned the catfish on the stroller, and the stroller helped to hold him up, and I gave him a push, and the catfish started pushing that stroller around the neighborhood. <laughs> and I figured, hey, if he can push a stroller, maybe I can make some money. I took him out in the backyard, and I leaned him 
on the lawnmower and I started it up and I gave him a push and he started pushing the lawnmower around, started mowing the lawn. <laughs> he had a little trouble turning around when he got to the end, but eventually he figured out and all the neighbors were leaning on the fence and they were watching and one of my neighbors, Sally, said, you know, if he can mow your lawn, why can't he mow mine? I thought, now you're talking, we can make some money. And I started hiring him out. He mowed all the lawns in the neighborhood. Now, most kids, they make money and their parents take it away from them. Yeah, make them save for college. But have you ever heard of a catfish going to Harvard? No, he got to keep his money. He got to spend his money. And one of his favorite things to do was to go to the movie theater. We love to go to the Rio theater and watch those animal movies. Have you seen the new Flipper movie? Well, when I was a kid, when the first Flipper came out and there was Return of Flipper, he loved anything to do with animals, but especially movies to deal with fish. <laughs> and we'd lean him in the back. See, his backbone didn't bend, so we couldn't bend him into the seat. And so he kind of sat up straight in the back and you could tell when he liked a movie. No, he couldn't comment like you or I. He couldn't say, I felt like the supporting actor did a fine job. But you could see those little fins just clapping and clapping and he would smile. <laughs> now I know some of you think this is a pretty funny story. Probably a few of you have smiled, maybe even chuckled, but truth is, this story's a tragedy. One day I came home from school and my dad said, son, why don't we take that catfish of yours fishing? <gasps> I said, Dad, don't talk about fishing in front of the F-I-S-H. He might think we're trying to kill one of his relatives or something. My dad laughed and said, no, that fish's brain's about the size of a lima bean. <laughs> Have you ever heard the saying that ignorance is bliss? Well, he doesn't know what's going on. He thinks he's a human being. And uh, I said, uh, well, if you think so. And my dad already had the fishing poles ready. So we took him on down to the river and we loaded him in the boat and we started rowing around and he didn't quite understand this physics things and how to cast out. So I cast his pole out for him and wouldn't you know it, he got the first bite. But because he didn't understand the lever action of the pole, he lost his balance and he fell in the river and that catfish, he drowned. A story called Mr. Catfish, told for you by the master of the Mississippi River story, Brian Fox Ellis. And, of course, I'm always intrigued by a story that begins with the phrase, history is not just a thing of the past. There's a lot more coming up on today's episode of The Appleseed. You're going to hear a story called Pipes and Chimes from Lynn Ruleman. And you're going to hear from the storyteller Noah Baum with a story about the Hunchback Brothers from a collection of stories called Far Away and Close to Home, stories from all over the world. I'm Sam Payne. Stick around. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago we heard from Brian Fox Ellis, who tells stories of all kinds about the area in which he lives and the environs of his section of the Mississippi River. That was a story that you heard called Mr. Catfish from a collection of river stories, one of a couple of collections of river stories. Whether Brian Fox Ellis is telling the stories of catfish or of Abraham Lincoln, it's always a pleasure to hear from Brian. 
Up next, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you that you can share around the kitchen table or the living room, we've got a memory for you now. It's a memory of mine. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. I work every day in a recording studio, and part of any recording studio worth its salt is that it has stuff hanging on the walls to control the way sound waves act in the room. Stuff on the walls to reduce the degree to which sound bounces from the walls or the ceiling in a way that's going to mess up the sonic quality of what gets recorded for you to hear. I've recorded in studios with all kinds of stuff on the walls. I've recorded in studios that have quilts hung on the walls to dampen the sound. And I've recorded in studios that have carpeted the walls to do the same thing. And I've been in studios in which the walls and ceiling are covered in those foam mattresses shaped like egg crates, you know the ones? And I've been in studios where the sound has been controlled by insulation, you know, the pink fiberglass stuff that comes in a big roll, that kind of insulation, covered in burlap. In the studio where I work most often, the studio in my home, the studio where I am right now, the walls have these fancy baffles made of this special acoustic foam treatment set into wooden frames. And they're just hung on the walls like you might hang pictures, resting on nails pounded into the studs beneath the sheetrock on the walls. There's not much to it. Not much that's remarkable about it, and not much that's less remarkable than you'd want it to be. But... Have you ever got an itch to change something, a little sense of something with which you'd be a tiny bit more comfortable if only it were a tiny bit different, something that no one would understand but you? Well, I had one of those itches working in the studio a few days ago. I thought, you know, the nails I used to mount those baffles are a little small. I bet they'd be a little more secure if I took them down and removed those short nails and pounded in some longer nails and then hung the baffles back up. Now, this is, in fact, as silly as it sounds. The baffles were in no danger of coming off the wall. They'd hung safely up there for years. The nails that held them on the wall were just fine. And no one ever sees the nails. There was no way anyone could be critical of them. Everything was just great. It was just great. But, you know, somehow I hadn't found exactly what I was looking for. Maybe you know the feeling. There's nothing wrong with what you have, except that you've got another idea that won't let go of you. And, well, I went out to the shed and I got a couple of three-inch nails and a hammer and I came back into the studio and I took the frames with the acoustic foam off the walls and I yanked out the old nails and right into the holes left by the old nails, I pounded new nails. But about halfway in, the first nail began to bend. And I tried to pull it out with the claw of the hammer to take another shot at pounding the nail straight. It was really stuck in there. I braced the head of the hammer on the wall and really put some muscle into it. So much muscle, as it turns out, that the head of the hammer pushed right through the sheetrock before the nail came out. It left a big, ragged hole in the wall, and the nail was still there. 
Well, that little itch I described, that little itch to change a little something, to make things a little better, in this case, almost imperceptibly better. One might, in fact, say imperceptibly better. Well, by now, I was cursing that itch under my breath. The nail, in the end, wouldn't come out at all. No idea what I'd run into. I got another nail and pounded it into the stud, now completely exposed due to the enormous hammer-shaped hole in the wall, and now I tripped to the store for a can of joint compound and then back to the studio where I patched up the hole. I vacuumed up the sheetrock dust made by the initial hammerhead through the wall, and when the joint compound was dry, I hung the baffle back on the wall, and... But it looked and sounded and behaved exactly like it had before, and all it had cost me was a whole morning. You've probably had similar adventures. It happens. Something isn't quite right for reasons that only you can understand. You still haven't quite found what you're looking for, and you think it's going to take just a moment to get everything squared away, and suddenly you're up to your elbows in a project. It's all good, of course. Projects gone wrong are one of the ways you learn to tackle projects in the right way. At least that's been my experience. You learn stuff by experience, and sometimes you're just glad no one was around to see it. As far as this project goes, if you drop by the studio for a visit when it's good and safe, you'll find that the result of my morning's work is that the studio looks and sounds exactly like it did before I started. The only thing changed, really, is me. At least, I hope that's the case. We'll find out the very next time I get an itch and embark on another project. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. You know, we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. All you need is a little memory to get it going. And if the show does that for you, we'd love to hear those stories. You can send us an email at theappleseed at byu.edu. We'd love to hear from you. Again, that's theappleseed at byu.edu. Coming up in just a moment, you're going to hear a story called Pipes and Chimes from Lynn Ruhlman. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the films we see, the books that we love, the meals that we share, the songs that we remember, and of course, the telling of tales, from telling to teller to listener, sometimes through generations and generations and generations, and talking about some of the ways in which those stories come into our lives and the shape they take is something we love to do with friends here on the Apple Seed. I'm very pleased to be joined by the great South Carolina storyteller, Tim Lowry. Tim it's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. My pleasure to be with you as well. 
You know, we're talking over a video call, though our listeners at home are, are experiencing just the audio of that call, so they can't see what a wonder your office is, filled with all kinds of wonderful things, and behind each thing, a story. I think of the way that a simple artifact can bring back to us someone who was precious to us. And you've got a pair of glasses that I want to talk about. Tell me about those glasses. Indeed, they're just little um, golden colored wire rim glasses. You know, people might call them granny glasses. They belong to my grandfather, who was, his name was Samuel Edward Lowry. He was from Tidewater, Virginia, and he was born in 1897. And that fact alone was enough to thrill me as a child. I thought it was the coolest thing ever that I had a grandfather that was born in the 19th century. <laughs> with, with an 18 at the beginning instead of a 19. Yes, indeed. I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. And um, he had these glasses largely just to see uh, small, fine things if he was working on a plumbing project. That was his trade. He was a plumber, uh, he could not read and write. So he never, you would, have, you would have called them reading glasses because he only put them on to see small fine things, but he actually never read. Hmm. And I don't know that I even realized he could not read until after he died. And he, I was in middle school when he died, but um, it just never came up. And, and uh, my, I would see my grandmother reading to him, but I always thought that was because she just found something interesting in the newspaper and wanted to share it with him. It never dawned on me that he couldn't <laughs> read the newspaper for himself. And I think he preferred it that way. I, I, don't, I don't know that he was particularly ashamed of it, but I, I got more the impression after I thought about it a long while, I, I think he didn't want his grandchildren to think they could just kind of take schooling casually. You know, it wasn't that important. Uh, and so he didn't want us to know that he could not read and write. <laughs> Those the, those glasses came. I, I, I'm thinking I'll, already. You know, my mind as you're talking about those glasses is going to uh, experiences with my own grandfather who wore reading glasses to to work on one thing or another. I remember him screen printing T-shirts for the family reunion and hoping that I would sit next to him and get down close to the screen and help him find the imperfections that he needed to fix in the screen before he printed those uh, those shirts. You know, of course, now I wear reading glasses myself, you know, but I don't have a pair of my grandfather's reading glasses like you. Yeah. How did those come I to do, you? I do, too. I have reading glasses. Mine are just, you know, his. I think he probably paid good money for his. They're bifocals, actually, yeah. but. Mine are just the cheap dime store glasses. You know, I have a pair in every room of the house. So sure, yeah. Count them. But um, as far as I know, he only had the one pair. I never saw him take up another pair. But he gave them to me personally uh, very close to the end of his life. And I don't know if he knew that that he would soon be gone or or he at least knew that he wasn't going to need them for fine work anymore, but he gave them to me personally. And he had told me many times about living through the great depression. I mean, he was well-established in his business as a plumber by the time the great depression hit being born in 1897. He was, he was well on his way by the time 1930s rolled around and uh, he lost tons of money. 
he told me that he had a nice home and always drove a nice car. And in what seemed like overnight, he was living in a cardboard box under an abandoned rail car and uh, worked his way back from that little by little. He always, he was very afraid to put money in the bank because of the uh, great depression and the bank closures and all. So when he died, we found $5,000 in a leather purse stuck behind the dresser and that was his funeral fund but he wouldn't put it in the bank but he gave me those glasses and he would tell me about how difficult things were in the depression and he said he always called me tammy (laughs) and that was because he was from tidewater virginia i thought he talked funny because he didn't have any teeth and then i realized oh that's how people from tidewater talk (laughs) they would all call you tammy and he said tammy i'm going to give you these glasses And I want you to put them on whenever you get ready to sign something, particularly if a bank is involved. He said, I don't want you to commit yourself to something that you might be sorry for years down the road if if some sort of hardship should befall you. Mm -hmm. And I very much took that to heart as a kid. And so I kept the glasses. And on occasion, when pushy salesmen come to my door, I say, let me go get my glasses. But I don't get mine. I get my grandpa's. And then I say, let me tell you a little story. <laughs> and generally that causes their sales pitch to shorten up really quickly. <laughs> we often wonder what we would do under the influence of some of the better heads of our elders, you know. Mm. Uh, I, I wonder a lot. I think, what would my grandfather do? What would Even what would my dad do in this situation, you know? And what a wonderful thing it is to have an artifact, you know, to help bring that to mind, especially an artifact you can wear, right? (laughs) (laughs) True, true. Well, it's a pleasure to hear about the glasses and even greater pleasure even to hear a little bit about your grandfather. These artifacts, these things that we hang on to and talk about really are just a window into memories about people that we love and that we want to keep near to us and keep alive in all the ways that we can through the stories about them that we tell. Tim, it's been such a pleasure to have you with me. Thank you. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat with Tim Lowry, the South Carolina storyteller, and we'll be sure to have him back. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear a story from Lynn Ruhlman called Pipes and Chimes, and you're going to hear a story about the Hunchback Brothers from the storyteller Noah Baum. You won't want to miss a word. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on this hour of The Appleseed. A moment ago, a conversation with Tim Lowry about a pair of glasses that has found its way into Tim's life and into his heart. And up next, we've got a story from Lynn Ruhlman about curiosity. Have you ever been curious, so curious you just couldn't hold it in? Well, in this story from Lynn's childhood, we hear the story of one such all-consuming curiosity. When Lynn's father heads to the chapel with the organ tuner, Lynn spots her chance to enter the forbidden pipe room. And when she's told to wait outside... Well, what's going to happen then? You're going to find out with Pipes and Chimes by Lynn Ruhlman here on The Appleseed. Pipes 
shapes and chimes. One morning, the minute I woke up, I knew that it was organ tuning day. My father was choir master and organist in a big church, and he loved his pipe organ, and he made sure that it was always well-tuned. I threw on my clothes and ran downstairs, and sure enough, my father was sitting at the breakfast table with Mr. Wheeler, the organ tuner. Mr. Wheeler was from out of town, so he always stayed at our house the night before the tuning. Usually when he came, I was in school, but on this day there wasn't any school, and I figured if I worked things just right, I might get to go along. Well, I went to work with my father all the time for rehearsals and services, but on those days there were always swarms of people around him demanding his attention. But if I went with him to tune the organ, there would only be the three of us, and I would be a part of my father's world that nobody else got to share. My mother was standing at the stove, stirring scrambled eggs, and the two men were discussing all the little quirks and problems the organ was having that needed to be fixed that day. I sat down at the table to wait for an opening in their conversation. There wasn't one. They talked about that organ until my mother served their breakfast. They talked about it all through their meal. They were still talking about that organ when they stood up to leave. I was going to lose my chance if I didn't jump in right that minute. I don't have any school today. That's nice, said Mr. Wheeler. I have the whole day free. I could come with you and help tune the organ. Please, Daddy, can I come along with you? Sure, my father said, if you really want to, as long as you don't get in the way. So the three of us went to the church and straight up to the choir room to leave our coats and bags. And then we headed back out into the hall toward the one room in that entire building where I had never explored. The room that was always locked, the pipe chamber. My father shuffled through his enormous bundle of keys, picked one out, unlocked and opened the door, and he and Mr. Wheeler stepped inside. I followed right along behind them. But before I even got one toe over the door jam, my father turned around and said, you know you're not allowed in here, Lynn. You go on back to the choir room and play. He wasn't going to let me in, not even on that day when I was so close. But I knew better than to disobey my father. Nobody ever disobeyed him, especially not in that church. I trudged back to the choir room, pulled out a coloring book and crayons from my bag, and sat down to color. I deliberately colored outside the lines. And when that picture was finished, I added black clouds for good measure. Then I fussed around with a puzzle for a while. But I was in no mood to be patient with puzzle pieces. I ate the snack my mother had sent along with me that day. I might just as easily have stayed home with her that day for all the fun I was having. 
Now I was going to be stuck in this giant room all by myself for hours. The longer I stayed there, the emptier that room felt and the creepier it got. It was time to go check and see how the tuning was going. I went back out into the hall. The door to the pipe chamber was still open. I could see the rows and rows of pipes inside. There were wooden ones and metal ones. Some were huge and some were teeny. That organ had thousands and thousands of pipes because each one was only able to make one single sound. It was very quiet inside. Maybe Mr. Wheeler and my father were taking a break. It might be my chance to get inside. It might be the only chance I would ever have in my entire life. I slid one foot inside. The floor wasn't like a regular floor. It had beams and cross beams, but there weren't any floorboards over the top of them. I knew that that was so that the sound from the pipes could travel straight down through the floor to the church below. I also knew that that was why my father said I wasn't allowed inside because it was too dangerous. But my feet were small. I knew how to balance on top of the brick wall outside, and it wasn't any wider than those beams. I would be careful. I slid my other foot inside, and it started inching my way along the beam when I heard E-flat. The voice belonged to Mr. Wheeler. He was in that pipe chamber after all, behind one of those tall rows of pipes where I couldn't see him. He was calling down through the floor to my father, who was sitting at the organ keyboards below. Then there was a loud, low, booming noise from one of the biggest of the organ pipes. My father was doing what Mr. Wheeler said, holding down an E-flat key on one of the keyboards, making that note play and play until Mr. Wheeler could tune the pipe to a perfect E-flat. The noise was so loud, so close to my ear, and I was so startled that I wobbled, but I knew I could not grab a pipe to steady myself. No one was allowed to touch the pipes. Fingerprints would change the way they sounded. So I waited until I was steady again, and then I backed up the way I'd come in, before anyone knew I'd ever been there. Once out, I was not about to go back to the choir room. I went downstairs and into the main part of the church. From the door, I could see up the steps and into the chancel and over to the side of the organ. I slid between two pews and down onto my knees so that my father wouldn't know I was there. Crouched down that way? I was right at eye level with the racks on the back of the pew, all filled with hymn books. How many hymn books, I wondered, would it take to make a stack tall enough to reach the top of the pew in front of me? I stacked up all the hymn books on that row. They weren't nearly enough, so I wriggled under the seat to get to the hymn books in the next row back 
and I shoved them and myself back under the seat. I kept track of how many hymn books I was collecting with a pew card and a pencil from the same rack. When I started hearing chords being played on the organ instead of single notes, I poked my head up over the back of the pew. Mr. Wheeler had come down from the pipe chamber and was standing beside my father at the organ's console. Daddy was playing chords all up and down and up and down all four of the keyboards, and then, with his feet on the pedals that made up their own keyboard, the men were nodding and nodding. Finally, my father started playing real music, and when he got to a hymn I knew, I started singing along under my breath. This is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. When he was finished, my father said, Sounds good, Scott. And Mr. Wheeler said, Yeah, I think so. See you in a few months, Richard. And then he was gone. Now we can go home, I thought. But when my father picked up a piece of music and spread it out on the music stand, I knew he was about to start practicing. And if he did, it would be hours more before we could leave. Nothing distracted him when he practiced. I had to act right then before it was too late. I stood up and walked up the steps to the chancel and right behind the organ bench. Just as I feared, it was already too late. He didn't notice. He kept right on playing. I happened to glance down and saw that he wasn't using his feet on the pedals in this piece. He had his ankles crossed underneath the organ bench. Huh. I got down on my hands and knees and crawled toward the bench. I reached under and untied the laces of one of his shoes. Then I untied the laces of his other shoe. And then... I took hold of the laces of one shoe in one hand and the laces of the other shoe in the other hand, and I tied them all together. Then I crept away, this time making sure that he didn't notice me. I crawled behind the nearest pew and lay down to wait and listen. My father played for a long time before he stopped. And then I heard the shuffling of music and then the rustling of his body on the organ bench. And then there was one single, unnatural thud. His feet had hit the floor, not the way they usually did, one foot at a time, but both of them together, thud. And then I heard him say, Oh, He must have seen his feet and figured out that his shoes were tied together. I clapped a hand over my mouth to stop myself from gasping or giggling. Then I heard him say, 
Lynn, you come out here right now. You know you're not supposed to play in this part of the church. I know you're out there. I wasn't going to come out now. I was not at all sure yet if he was going to be all mad or if he might possibly think it was just a little bit funny. There was silence. I decided he must be fixing his laces. And then he said, It's time to play the chimes. Do you want to watch? Oh, yes, I did. But what if he was just saying that to trick me into coming out? Oh, but he really, really loved the chimes. I loved them a whole lot more than I liked the organ. The organ could be loud, and it could fill up the whole building, but when the chimes rang out, they floated through the air and over the entire city. I stood up. My father saw and waved me over. He was sitting on the organ bench again, but this time he was turned to face the tiny keyboard at one end of the bench. He slid back to make a place for me, and I hopped up. He said, You play. Oh, no. I couldn't play. I would make mistakes, and then everybody in the whole city would hear them. Go on. I'll help you. Start with this note. And he pointed to one of the keys. I reached up and pressed the key. Bong. Now these. And he pointed to two more keys, and I played them. Bong, bong. Now these. And he kept on pointing, and I kept on playing. Bong, 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 bong. Bong, 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 bong. Bong, 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 bong. When we were done, my father reached up and ruffled my hair the way he did when he was pleased. So now you've played the chimes. What do you say I pick up my music, you close up that keyboard, and we go home? And that is just what we did. But as we slid off the organ bench, he said, And about that trick you played on me? It was pretty darn funny. Lynn Ruhleman with a story called Pipes and Chimes here on the Appleseed. 
And we're going to wrap up today with a story from storyteller Noah Baum. It's a story about two hunchback brothers, one of them mean-spirited and one of them good-hearted. And that mean-spirited nature of the elder brother and the good-hearted nature of the younger brother come to bear in this tale from a collection of stories called Far Away and Close to Home, a collection of folk tales from all over the world told by Noah Baum. Happy to bring you the Hunchback Brothers here on The Appleseed. two brothers who lived in the same village and they were both, it was God's will, hunchbacks. But other than that, they were very different from each other. The older one, Pacey was his name. He was a mean-tempered, spiteful soul. Always envious, never content with whatever he had. The younger one, Muttle was his name, was a kind-hearted, easy-going soul, always content with whatever happened. But those brothers, as you can imagine, did not get along. Pacey was making his brother's life miserable, always teasing him, saying things like, Your hump is bigger than mine. (laughs) Until one day, Muttle decided he's had it. His brother's bickering was making his life short, and he was going to leave. He didn't have much. Just an extra pair of trousers, which he put in his sack, flung upon his back, and walked out of the village. He walked through the forests all that day, and suddenly the sun set. And it was dark, and he found himself in the middle of the forest, with not a house in sight, nowhere to go. But being mortal, he made the best of it. He found a clearing with a hollow tree on the side, and he curled up in that tree, and he went to sleep. He didn't sleep long. Suddenly he awoke, for the clearing was filled with creatures, big ones and little ones, thin ones and fat ones, tall ones and short ones. But they all had big glowing eyes, black bat-like wings, and long sharp claws. And Muttle didn't need to look twice to know who they were, demons. And the demons were beating their drums. The demons were screaming and twirling and sticking out their tongues. The demons were dancing. And suddenly, the smallest one stopped, and they all stopped. The smallest one sniffed the air. I believe a human is watching us. There! And he pointed straight at Mortal. Oi, Mortal wanted the earth to open up and swallow him alive, but instead, the demons dragged him out of that tree and made a circle around him. And the smallest one, apparently their leader, said, You were watching us, so now you must dance with us. What could Muttle do? He danced. He danced with all his might. He danced from the bottom of his heart. The demons liked the way he danced. For when they were through, the smallest one said, Ah, 
You're a fine dancer. The best one we've ever met. You must stay and dance with us forever. F -f forever? Um, yes, thank you. But I must go back to the village to say goodbye to my family. I will come back tomorrow. Tomorrow? Yes, uh, I promise. You promise? Of course you do. But just to make sure that you don't forget, you must leave us a pledge. A pledge? Mutta looked around him. What could he possibly offer as a pledge? He offered his sack. They didn't want it. He, he offered his shirt. They didn't want it. He offered his shoes. Ooh. <laughs> they didn't want those. He said, uh, I'm sorry. I really don't have anything else except my hump. Your hump? Ah, now that's undamaged goods. That's a pledge we could accept. And before Myrtle could say another word, they made a tight circle around him, and suddenly they vanished. And there he was in the middle of the forest, and he noticed that his hump was gone. He was standing straight. For the first time since the day he was born, he was holding his head up high. Oh, his heart was filled with so much joy, he began to run. He ran through the forest. He ran all the way back to the village. He ran through the main street of the village, and people peered through their windows and looked out through their doorways. Look at Muddle. What happened to his hump? Ooh, look, what happened? What happened to his what happened to his hump? And Pacey. Pacey wanted to know. What happened to your hump? And Muddle told him. He told him the whole story. And Pacey said, Oh, you ignorant fool! Don't you know that demons have hordes of gold? If you were only smart enough, you would have stuck around. You would have seen where they hide their gold, and we could have been rich. But I'm quite happy with the way things are, brother. But Pacey was not happy with the way things are. He took directions to the place in the forest, and he found that tree, and he curled there, and he went to sleep. But he didn't sleep long, for soon he was awakened. The clearing was filled with demons. And the demons were beating their drums. The demons were screaming and twirling and sticking out their tongues. The demons were dancing. And suddenly the smallest one stopped and they all stopped. The smallest one sniffed the air. I believe a human is watching us. There! And they dragged Pacey out of his hiding place and made a circle around him. And the smallest one said, You were watching us, so now you must dance with us. And Pacey danced. But as he danced, he looked around. Where could they be hiding their gold? Unfortunately for Pacey, demons cannot tell one human being from another. 
And when they were done with their dancing, the smallest one said, Ah, you're a fine dancer, I've always said that, and an honest fellow too. You kept your promise and returned, so we'll return your pledge to you. And before Pacey could say another word, they made a tight circle around him, and seeing that he already had one hump upon his back, they stuck the pledged hump upon his chest. <laughs> so now he had two. Whatever happened to him after that? Did he go on dancing with the demons till the end of time, or did he go off wandering in the world with his two humps? Who knows? No one ever told me, but I do believe that Mottle never saw that spiteful brother of his again. A story recorded live before an audience uh, from Noah Baum, a story called The Hunchback Brothers. It's been a pleasure to bring these stories to you today, stories from Noah Baum, stories from Lynn Ruhlman, who told us that tale of pipes and chimes. And, of course, we had a conversation with Tim Lowry about an important pair of glasses. And at the top of the hour, you heard a story called Mr. Catfish from Brian Fox Ellis. Always a pleasure to be with you. Join us online at BYU radio.org slash Appleseed. All kinds of stuff there, including all of the episodes of the show, nearly 2,000 of them, filled with stories for you and your family. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.